Hey there, I'm Zoe Jordan Salisbury, and you're listening to Wonks Will Win, a progressive policy podcast. We sit down and interview candidates for office, running for every level of government, whether that's city council, state house, senate, or maybe even someday president. We'll talk to these candidates about the policy issue that matters most to them and dig into the nitty gritty. Because after all, what matters after the election is the policy that's put into place and how it impacts the lives of the people these candidates serve. So let's get into it. I'm Kathy Myers, and I am a high school English teacher, and I'm on the Janesville School Board, and I'm also running for Congress in Wisconsin's 1st Congressional District, uh, now to replace Paul Ryan and uh, take back that seat. Awesome. So I know when you first started running, you were obviously thinking you were going to be running against Paul Ryan. So everything's changed a little bit, but what made you decide to run for office? Well, there were a lot of reasons to uh, to run, and one of the things that got me considering running was the election of Trump in the fall course of uh, 2016. But then, I, as I was thinking about what to do and how I should respond to this, I was dismayed and shocked by the selection of Betsy DeVos as Education Secretary. And she sort of really got me going as far as really seriously considering this run. And, uh, and I just felt as though there was, there was going to be so much damage done to public education in this administration. And we needed to add more teachers and people who are strong advocates of public education to Congress to play defense for a while and educate others, educate the public, and also make sure that we protect those people within our districts that are a part of our public school system and the uh, parents and students that depend on it. Yeah. So you, you were a public school teacher for 24 years, right? That's right. I'm currently teaching still. Oh, wow. So you're still teaching while you're running. Yes. So as a teacher, what do you think from being in the education system that you've seen that is something that a Congress could do to make your job as a teacher easier and to make the public school system better for students? Well, I think that there's a number of things that, uh, that the federal system can do. I really think that we need to partner with states to make sure that we support our local schools. And because when a school starts to fall apart, then the community starts to fall apart. And, you know, oftentimes we talk about economic issues and educational issues as being separate, and they truly are not. So I think that in Congress, we need to make sure that we have people there who know, who understand the relationship between the two and are always advocating for the educational component to be part of the discussion of economics and, uh, you know, and um, economic development and that sort of thing. We also should do what we can to prevent harm to our public schools. That to me means making sure that we do not expand and even end the voucher programs that take public money away from local communities and, you know, give the money to private entities that are not responsible to that money, that they are, they are not held accountable um, like public schools are. And so that would be one, you know, specific policy that I would uh, try to end. 
So talk to me a little bit about what education, the public education system looks like in Wisconsin, because I'm from I'm from Washington state and uh, we're a little weird in that we're one of the few states that has public education system funding in our state constitution. So what does public education look like in Wisconsin currently and how has it sort of changed over the past couple of years? Well, public education has been under attack in Wisconsin. It started with the passage of Scott Walker's Act 10 bill, which attacked uh, the collective bargaining rights of uh, public employees, including teachers. And you could bargain over things like salary and just base salary at, even. That was just it. But you weren't allowed to discuss working conditions. And honestly, Working conditions are student conditions in education. And so, you know, things like, uh, you know, class sizes and and other such things, they they couldn't be built into contracts or even making sure that benefits and, and salaries, you know, remain competitive. And so there was really sort of a, I want to say, a, a malaise over the whole profession in Wisconsin after Act 10. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of teachers that just said, I'm done. I'm done. And we even in Janesville, there was a, a, a group out of Milwaukee that, that put flyers on people's doors, publishing uh, the salaries of teachers in Janesville and basically trying to demonize them for the work that they do and the fact that they, oh yeah, the fact that they have this five figure salary, my goodness. And, you know, they were almost personal attacks on teachers in this area. Oh, it was terrible. It was terrible. And, you know, because um, Scott Walker created an an enemy in ordinary people. A lot of people, um, you know, sort of took up that mantle and, and uh, bought into it for a little while. Now, things are, are getting better, but that's because there are people that are running for school board with the idea of making sure that we support public education. There are, so some school boards are beginning to show some change and evolution and that sort of thing. I think people have realized just how incredibly important having really good people who love public education on school boards is. It's almost like you should be interested in what you're regulating. Exactly, exactly. So things are getting better, but I will tell you that we still have, um, we still are horribly underfunded in Wisconsin, even though Scott Walker will tell you that he's up the, uh, the funding for education. Yes, he has recently, but it doesn't get us nearly back to where we were before Act 10. That, that is quite something. I, I just can't imagine your, your neighbors attacking you for what you're paid when you're educating their children. So with Act 10, and you're talking about what public bargaining looks like for teachers in Wisconsin, there have obviously been these teacher strikes that have been happening all over the country, um, specifically in a lot of red states. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And as a teacher, you know, what you think makes teachers say, okay, now is the time to take this action. And also a little bit about why they haven't been getting as much attention as they maybe should have. Well, Zoe, I've actually been on strike, so I know exactly what uh, compels them. So our strike happened in 2003. And so while I live in Janesville and I'm on the Janesville School Board, I actually teach in Illinois, where we have very strong collective bargaining rights and we do have the right to strike. And uh, 
So in 2003, there were some changes being floated and uh, uh, suggested to our contract then to, that would have eliminated uh, a preparation period for us, which means that we would have less opportunity to work with students, less opportunity to plan, less opportunity to collaborate with our, with our peers. And again, teaching conditions and workplace conditions are student conditions in education. And so we went on strike uh, for three weeks. They even offered us more money to come back early. And we said, no, this is not about money. This is about our ability to serve the people that we care about most, our students. And uh, we've got a lot of experience and uh, we are well-educated. And there are a lot of things that we could be doing. We choose to teach because it is a calling. So when these teachers are going on strike, it's because we've underfunded teaching so much. It's made it impossible for them to do their job well. And that's what they care about most, serving those kids and their families. And so when you uh, uh, undercut that, you undermine it, and then you blame them for it, you bet. You bet they're going on strike. I know exactly why they're going on strike. I support them 100%. Yeah, people teach because they care about their students. I'm not a teacher, but I've worked in early childhood education. So I guess technically teaching. But um, it's so interesting how in our society, people often undervalue the people who are shaping the future of our society. So with talking about collective bargaining and unions, why do you think that the power of unions has sort of dropped recently and become almost like a dirty word? And how do you think that we can reclaim that? Because my parents are both unionized um, and the life that I had growing up wouldn't have been the same if that wasn't the case. And I watched my mom go through actually her workplace. She um, is a home health physical therapist and they were one of the last groups at her employer to unionize. So I watched that process firsthand. But so how do we sort of bring back the, the glitz and glam of collective bargaining for our people? Well, I love the fact that you called it glitz and glam (laughs) (laughs) because, because uh, um, I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, actually collective bargaining is really hard work right? and it requires a lot of preparation and a lot of homework. And, uh, you know, and so I, you know, I think that, I think that maybe the attacks we've seen on on unions and uh, the fact that wages haven't increased, you know, while uh, the cost of living has increased, even though there's low unemployment, wages are only up like, I think, like 0.10 or, or, you know, 0.1%. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, it's not, it's nothing. And it certainly hasn't kept pace. And, you know, we, uh, the last time we had a really solid, solid middle class in this country is when we had strong unions. And I think that a lot has been done over the last few decades to put up obstacles to um, unionization. And I think that they've done a lot of divide and conquer tactics. Uh, the people that don't want unions, the people that want to basically have like no minimum wage even, and just, you know, pay people um, whatever the scraps that fall from their table. And, uh, you know, so I think that they've done a lot of divide and conquer. And then, so there are places where they're, they don't have unions or they are lim- their unions are really limited. And they see other people that are living a middle-class life And instead of the conversation being about how can I have that too, 
you know, and the answer being we should unionize, we should band together, we are stronger together. It has been since I don't have it, you shouldn't have it. It's the same conversation that we've had about health care. You know, when people would say, you know, why should you have health care? I don't have health care through my job. Why should you? The question is, why don't you have it? And uh, because everybody should have health care. So I think that that's what it's been. It's been an ongoing assault. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think that unions have done a, very, a good enough job of making their case. And so now in Wisconsin, the unions, the uh, public unions have to recertify every year. And that means that they have to re- to talk to people that come on or even people that are already there and explain how they serve them, why it's important to be a member of the union. In a way, it's been a ton of work, but it's also been kind of a silver lining, especially with the, the local education association that I'm most familiar with. The Uniserve director there has told me that, you know what, I'm making my case and I'm telling them about, you know, what I do and why it's important and they get it. And so, you know, I think it was something that we sort of took for granted for a while. And it's unfortunate. And that recertification, that was originally as part of like an attack on unions, right? Because they were hoping That's that right. people wouldn't be able to recertify. But it's almost forced everybody to keep having that conversation about why unions matter. And then they coupled that with, uh, you know, keeping wages as low as they can. And so people are, you know, sitting there looking at the their paycheck and and their dues. And they need the dues that, you know, this is, this is a service that is provided to you. And so they're saying, well, you know, wow. I don't know how I can afford that. But yet you it's almost like the investment in education, you can't afford not to. You really must invest in your job like you would in your children and your their education. That's a hard argument to make to people sometimes when they're not investing in either of those things, uh, including their education. So obviously, you know your state inside and out um, and your district. It seems like it's very clear from everything you say and everything I've ever read about you. But so what do you think on the federal level in Congress that Democrats could be doing to protect education from Betsy DeVos and everyone and, you know, even from governors like Scott Walker who want to attack it? How can we on a federal level protect education and protect unions? Well, and the the federal level, um, we can protect unions by enacting certain laws that eliminate some of the hurdles that we've already talked about that have been used to oppress unions and oppress the conversation about working together. And as far as education is concerned, I think we really need to make our case and have as many people as possible who truly understand what goes on in schools. You know, they're talking about the things that matter. So we also need to be bringing, you know, more uh, educational professionals in to talk with us. And, uh, you know, and what is the role of, uh, of uh, the federal government? Um, there's a lot of things that, you know, we, sh- we should be making sure that there's plenty of time for collaboration and, uh, you know, within uh, the school system. 
And we should be doing what we can to make sure that those areas that are most underserved and most difficult um, to find really quality teachers to work in. Now, making sure that uh, we, you know, uh, find ways to put really quality teachers in those uh, school systems uh, to help them out too. And I think that that can be the kind of partnership that we have with the states, you know, at the federal level to ensure quality education. I have a question for you. So I just graduated college. Um, Ooh, and congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I have a bunch of friends who graduated this year, last year, who are doing programs like Teach for America, which have obviously faced, you know, some criticism because they can, you know, often Teach for America members aren't part of local unions or they're there for two years and then they leave. And, you know, a lot of people I know go into those programs with the best of intentions. They want to help teach, they want to help in communities that need that. But how do we encourage, you know, people to go into teaching, not just for two years, but to build that lasting relationship in their community? We have to support those people. And that means that we have to, you know, have um, good communities within the building and that support new people and mentor them. It is really, it can be a very lonely profession in, you know, in some areas. Yeah. I've, I've been very fortunate where I teach. We really collaborate well and we support each other and we, you know, uh, try to uh, make sure that every new teacher has a good, strong mentor that, that can guide them through, you know, all of the, all of the, the bureaucracy, even of the things, you know, all the paperwork you have to file and, and just to, just to be there for them and, and, uh, so I think that that's one of the things that we need to do. We also really need to emphasize preparation. So one of the things that I worry about with a Teach for America person that you know goes into a school system, I love their intentions. I think that that is so admirable, but we're not doing them any favors unless we have really strong preparation for every teacher that enters a classroom. And that means understanding not only, you know, methodology, from how to get from point A to point B in a lesson or whatever, but also to understand the culture of certain school systems and, and communities and, you know, and how to uh, assist in that respect, um, you know, and under and also to enhance the entire system. Again, we need to be partnering with uh, communities and states on making sure that the areas that are most vulnerable and usually are so vulnerable because of a lack of jobs and stability and safety, making sure that we are all collaborating um, to uh, bolster those systems and, and help those students out. We, when we, uh, you know, when a child fails to reach their potential, we, we pay for it not only in, you know, in moral terms, but also, you know, uh, economic terms in our in our society does not advance unless we do everything we can to help all of these kids. Obviously, a lot of what we've been talking about is public education before you get to college, and that's very important. But then I know that you've been talking a lot about in Wisconsin the way the public college programs have been changing. Um, obviously, a key issue in 2018 on a lot of races is college education and should college be free? Should we be free for a four-year degree or a two-year degree or a trade school? So where do you fall on the post 
secondary education policy side of things? And what do you think that should look like? If you would have graduated from high school and gone to college in the late 60s, early 70s, and even up through most of the 70s, you could have worked for the summer and earned enough money to pay your tuition and board for the semester or for an entire year. Oh, my parents have told me that. (laughs) That's right. And that's because that was a time when we used to invest in our public universities and we don't anymore. Investment has uh, dropped off. I think it's like down to like 15% or something like that of state, um, you know, budgets. I mean, it's just abysmal what we invest in our public schools and even at the secondary level. And we have this thing in Wisconsin that's called the Wisconsin idea. It is part of our, you know, it's, it's in our state's DNA, basically. And what it means is that the role of public education is to improve the lives of people within the state and in their communities, that there is a, that partnership that I've been talking to you about that the school system here was founded on was, you know, has been um, devoted to for generations And now we're seeing a lack of investment in our uh, universities to the point where there are universities that are now becoming more like trade schools and are eliminating and cutting things like English and history and political science. And we forget that to be citizens in this country. You have to know a lot of things to be active and informed citizens. You have to read well. You have to write well. Uh, You should understand your history. You should understand the government system that, that affects your life every day. And you should also want to be a part of it. That is part of being a citizen. And so the Wisconsin idea and the Wisconsin school systems used to be very along those lines. And we are seeing such erosion of it this, you know, these last, uh, you know, several years, decade or two, and this not only here in Wisconsin, but we've also seen it nationally. And so I, you know, I have, I have two children. My son is 29 and my daughter is 27. They left college. Uh, they did everything they were supposed to. They got good grades. They worked hard. And then they left college with thousands and thousands of dollars in debt. And, you know, it was, it's really difficult to make the case to a a child that, you know, you should do this. And then having, especially when you graduate and then the job that you might be able to find is, you know, less than, than uh, living wage. And so, you know, how do you, that's assuming that you can find a job in your area. So that's really, you know, I think we need to address the student loan debt issue. They should be able to um, restructure their loans and um, they should be able to discharge those in bankruptcy if they absolutely have to. And, you know, I think also we need to be investing a lot more in education. Yeah, well, I just got my email from my student loan servicer telling me how much I owe them in six months. So I'm all about restructuring student loans. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. And I think it's just also student loans can be such a bureaucracy, right? Like um, there's the public student loan forgiveness programs, or if you work for a nonprofit or in certain professions, including in a lot of areas, teaching, you can get your loans forgiven, but you have to enroll in those programs from the first day of the job and you have to make sure everything's set up right. And you hear these stories where people try to take advantage of those programs and then 10 years of making their payments later, their records were wrong with their servicer and they still, they don't get the benefit of that. And it just can be such a complicated process to walk through. Yes, it is. And it, you know, and, and they, they also break all those loans down into individual loans. And so there might, it might be 6% on this one and, you know, and 6% on that one. And it's just amazing how much it adds up and how much more you really, you know, you, you really have to uh, pay and then you can consolidate them, but there's some stipulations with that, that can be, you know, uh, difficult to overcome. And so you're right. It's just a huge bureaucracy and it should be um, streamlined as well. And, you know, as a high school teacher, one of the things that I think that we need to also make sure we do for our students after they leave us is do a lot more career readiness. And that could include things like having apprenticeships and, uh, you know, collaborate with tech schools in the area and two-year colleges to allow students to earn credits uh, while they're in high school, dual enrollment kind of opportunities. And, uh, you know, we need to remind ourselves that not every student wants to go to a four-year school. And that it should be about pursuing what you want, not what you think is going to, you know, I don't know, get you the house. And, you know, I mean, frankly, frankly, everything you do should, should, you know, if you are a high school graduate and, and got some uh, post-secondary education, you should be able to, you know, eventually get your own house. And that's your, the job you get should be. I can't imagine. <laughs> yes. The job you get should be able to, you know, help you out with that. You should be able to earn your way to uh, home ownership. And so I think having some sort like some collaboration in between schools and making sure kids are career ready. And by the way, that does not mean that just because we might be making it possible for a student to go and to become an electrician, which is a great profession, or, you know, or go into carpentry or whatever, any of those things, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be well-versed in math and English and history and all those things. You know, that's not, I'm not ever suggesting that one thing is at the expense of another. That's something that seems to be happening, right? There's a lot of discussion about, oh, we need to, you know, make it possible for people to be career ready, but then it's starting to be, okay, let's do that instead of having a well-rounded liberal arts education. And it's almost like we kind of swing back and forth in education. It's either one or the other. It's, I feel like there's been two different options like my whole high school one what time it was everyone should be career ready and one point it was four year and it's there's never any in between which is difficult that's right yeah dual enrollment programs are incredible that's one of the things they do well in seattle and i had a lot of friends who graduated high school at the same time as they got their associate's degree which is pretty remarkable so then they're also a lot more employable if they decide to go on to a four-year degree and work during college because they can get jobs that require that degree. I agree. I think that I think that we need to be our investment has to be in um, the next generation and we have to do whatever we can um, to make sure that they are well-rounded, 
well-educated and make it possible for them to pursue the things that they really want to do. It's so hard because it feels like a lot of times you have to make a choice between what you want to do and what you can afford to do. I can't tell you how many times I've had students tell me that they're going to college. And I say, oh, what do you want to do? Well, I don't know. I just know that I want to earn a lot of money. And what they're saying is, is that they want to make sure that they can, again, have a house, have a car or two, uh, be able to raise a family. And unfortunately, they see college as the only way of doing that. And it's true for a lot of people it is, but I want to make sure it's what you really want to do. And then there's all these other things that I've been talking about, you know, as far as like the economic side of it, it, making sure that the jobs that they're interested are well-paying and family-supporting jobs. Because then otherwise, we're not going to have the people that we need for those jobs. And we need people for a variety of things. And I think it's also important to, you know, have those non-traditional options. Because I'm actually, I'm planning to go to law school and I'm going part-time. Because then I can work and I can afford it. And, you know, if I had known that was something you could do with a four-year college, I might have done that. But it it just, a lot of times it feels like it's either four years full-time or not at all. And that's not the way the system should be. So this is a very general question, but if there was one thing about the public education system in either Wisconsin or the country that you could just like erase it and start from scratch, what do you think that would be? Because for me, it would be, I don't think that we should use property taxes to fund schools because it can just result in so much segregation and funding. So what, do you, what would it be for you? <laughs> Well, I well, I'd have to agree with you there about the way that public education is funded. It is, it is ridiculous, and we are setting budgets before we even know how much money we are going to be able to bring in. Now, it's um, it is just the weirdest way to ever manage any sort of an organization. Uh, so, I would I would have to agree with you there. I would also say that I would like to see a lot more emphasis on creativity and teaching kids. What I say about, what I'm saying here is that this uh, testing phenomenon that has uh, sort of taken over our schools. And while I agree hundred percent with accountability, it seems, it, it seems to have swung, you know, so far in that direction that now we're just worried always about the next test and we're not making learning enjoyable anymore or an act of discovery like it should be or exploration, finding out, you know, uh, about things and about your world and seeing how it all fits together. Instead, when you're talking about test-taking strategies and, you know, I think that while we need some tests, it gives us really good information about, you know, where the student is performing and it helps, you know, helps us in the classroom. Uh, I think that we have swung so far on to that area that we have lost some of the, the joy of education and of learning. So what do you think accountability looks like in a, in a healthy school where you want to make sure students are achieving and, you know, teachers are helping them, but you don't want it to be this test or a school is getting closed? Well, I think that, you know, it should be, there should be, you know, certain tests that maybe the entire, like an entire department does. And then I don't believe that, you know, the child's future 
should necessarily be measured by just that test. I think that, you know, if you had, for instance, um, smaller schools or smaller classrooms, you would be able to individualize the instruction a lot more for the student where you could, they could be doing things, activities or exercises or, you know, assignments that might help them perform better even on a test, but also a better, a better expression at what they know and, uh, you know, how they know it. I was always the kid in high school who made video projects whenever I could, instead of writing an essay. So I mean, I definitely did not test well. <laughs> there is a, yeah. there's a truly incredible unlisted YouTube video, a uh, musical version of Romeo and Juliet from my freshman English class. Uh, so <laughs> I am going to look for that. Oh, no, no. It's well <laughs> hidden. I have gotten much better at editing. <laughs> I'd love to see it. Oh, man. Oh, man. That yeah, sounds great. Yeah, that was, that was one of my favorite things I did freshman year. And I definitely learned a lot more about Romeo and Juliet through that because I had to write a script and I'll pick the songs and everything. So I guess in, in sort of conclusion, I know that you are in a primary so if you wanted to talk a little bit about your race specifically, and if people are listening and they are in love with your campaign, how could they get involved either within your district in Wisconsin, outside your district in Wisconsin, or from around the country? How could they support you? Well, okay. Very good. Thank you so much, by the way, um, for this opportunity to talk to you and your listeners. I really appreciate it. So I do have a primary and I have been, um, we've sort of been the, the tortoise and the, you know, uh, in the tortoise and the hare story here in this, but we have been building all along. And once people find out that there's an alternative to the, my primary opponent, and they learn a little bit more about me and my background and my readiness for this position. And also when they learn that I'm here and they realize that I am uh, better suited to take on the Republican challenge in November, uh, we flip a lot of people that, you know, are, are suddenly deciding that, whoa, wait a minute, I didn't know you were in here. And now that I know you, yes, this is an obvious choice for me. So it's been, um, it's been a lot of work um, because my primary opponent got a lot of attention right away, but he's been just coasting basically this since uh, he started and uh, has not been, uh, you know, it's been like he's, he is just hoping that the notoriety and the celebrity is going to carry him through the primary. And it's, it might. We have been pushing for debates and forums with him. He canceled one last October and promised us that he would uh, look into him this spring. Well, it's spring and it's uh, it's way in the middle of spring now. And so we finally got one forum agreed to, not nearly as many as we'd like, but they're avoiding us as much as possible so that people are not able to make the comparison. Uh, so there's that. And, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this because I do think I'm the more qualified candidate. My primary opponent has yet to win an election, even though he's run three times. He's never cleared 40 percent. And I've been elected twice. And I have made no bones about, you know, the things I care about and have served that way and have been reelected. And uh, without, you know, without sort of playing um, politics, I guess you could say. 
So if you can help us out by helping us spread the word and engaging with our campaign, or if you'd like to know more, you can go to kathymyersforcongress.com and find out more about us there. And there's links there to our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Kathy's with a C, C-A-T-H-Y, and Myers is M-Y-E-R-S. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank you, Zoe. If you like the podcast, please rate us on the platform of your choosing and consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find all of our episodes, links to the candidate websites, more information about how to support them on our website, wongswillwin.com.